I'm excited to to share this morning out of God's Word in Judges chapter 6 and 7. We're continuing our series entitled Unheroic. And as we go through the book of Judges, we're looking at four individuals who God used despite their flaws and despite their imperfection. And so I've subtitled this series Unheroic, How God Uses the Worst for His Best. Now, not all of these people are horrible, wicked, evil people. Now, we're going to get to some of those by the end of the series, but, but some of them are just imperfect and flawed. But I still want us to recognize this is, this is our worst. Who we are is not up to God's standard, and God still uses it for His glory and for His best. As the book of Judges progresses, what we find is that that we continue to see a downfall, a spiral of those who uh, are worshiping God to those who are forgetting about God to those who are against God. Over and over and over again, we see flaws. And so last week when we looked at Deborah, she was a pretty upstanding individual. But this week we're looking at a man named Gideon and he has his own set of problems. By next week, we're going to find someone who who just flat out does not have any regard for God. And then finally, we're going to look at someone who has forgotten about who the character of God is. I like Gideon. The reason why he's my favorite judge and my, my favorite Old Testament character and probably my favorite story in all of Scripture is that I relate to Gideon a lot. Maybe this morning you don't think you relate to Gideon, but as the story unfolds, I've got a feeling that more of us than not have some character qualities similar to Gideon. Anybody have any strong fears in here this morning? Things you're just deathly afraid of? Anybody have things you're death? I, I thought about putting some pictures up on the screen to get a reaction, but I know a few of you uh, that if I just put or even mentioned certain things, it would send you, you crawling. I don't really have any tangible fears. I don't like snakes or spiders, but I don't mind them as long as they're you know, at a distance enough. Um, If I know they're not poisonous, I don't even mind touching them. It's okay. Um, I I don't really like things that surprise me. So while I'm not afraid of frogs, there's been a few times that a frog has jumped out. and It kind of startles me, but once I know it's a frog, it's not a big deal. I don't really have any tangible fears, but, but I do have fears. Maybe you've got something tangible. Maybe it's, maybe it's bugs. Maybe it's uh, some animal of some sort. Or, or maybe you're like me. You just have fears of, of failure, fears of, of what people might perceive you like, fears of, fears of society or relationships. Maybe you have fears that are behind the scenes. And when someone says, what are you afraid of, you would never admit, but, but truthfully, you have those fears. But one of my biggest fears, or most of my biggest fears, revolve around my family. I think all of us can relate to that, right? We have fears about keeping our family safe or doing things that's best for our family. Or what if we don't do the things we're supposed to be doing? We have, we have fears. And the reason why I relate to Gideon is because Gideon's not afraid to express his fears. Gideon very bluntly and boldly tells God, I don't think I'm up for this task. And God drags him along. I want to read from the book of Judges, just the first few verses of chapter 6, and then instead of reading all of chapter 6 and 7, we're going to kind of do a a summary of it, and your homework, if you will, is to to make that a part of your reading today or tomorrow, to read Judges 6 and 7, and even Judges chapter 8, if you'd like, that continues the story of Gideon. 
But particularly chapter 6 and 7 that, that delve into, and we'll look at a few verses this morning as well, but, but let's set the stage for what's going on in Gideon's life. Uh, Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1, says this, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. If you were with us last week, you know this is a reoccurring theme in the book of Judges. Sometimes they'll even use the word again. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The people of Israel were were having everything going well and they messed it up. They did what was evil and now the Lord gives them to an enemy. This is going to happen over and over and over again. Before we become too judgmental to the people in the book of Judges, can we remind ourselves that this is our story, right? Everything's going well. We're doing all that we're supposed to be doing. We show up and sit in church and we volunteer and we help in Bible school and we do. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves slipping away and the people of First Baptist again do what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, right? This is us. And here the people of Israel are again falling away. In verse 2, the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves... Uh, The dens that are in the mountains and in the caves and in the strongholds. This is a picture of them hiding in caves and mountains out of fear. The people of Midian were so oppressive that they sheltered themselves into hiding. Verse 3. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox Or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And if you remember last week, when the people cried out, who was it that God sent? It was Deborah. Was Deborah uh, some high-ranking commander official? No, who was Deborah? Deborah was a prophetess. There's a problem, and so God doesn't first send a warrior. God sends someone to speak on his behalf. Deborah the prophetess goes and talks to Barak. This week we have a prophet, an unnamed prophet, that we don't know anything about except for in these few verses that God sends to talk to the people of Israel. He sends a prophet in verse 7 and 8, and then the rest of verse 8 says, The prophet said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. The prophet says, remember how faithful I was to you? Remember that I, God, saved you once before. Remember when you were in in Egypt and you were enslaved, I brought you out of there. Remember me? And then in verse 10, and I said to you, the Lord is speaking, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But listen to this important sentence. But you have not obeyed my voice. Isn't it striking that when we call out for help, God doesn't always immediately send help? Like the first thing he sends is not someone to say, let me bail you out of this, but instead to go, someone who comes and proclaims, I've already bailed you out and you messed it up again. But don't we hate that? 
Can we be honest? Don't we hate when God does that to us, right? Lord, I've messed up and I need your help. And God sends someone to say, basically, I told you so. You know, I gave you instructions and you blew it. God, okay, quit beating me down. But, but God needs the people of Israel to know they're in this position that could have been avoided so that in the future they won't find themselves there again. This is going to be very important because we're going to meet Gideon here in just a minute. And Gideon certainly heard the words of the prophet. He certainly knew the story of Israel being saved out of Egypt. And we're reminded why God sends us a voice of reason. But like Gideon, we are often too stubborn to listen. Let's meet Gideon in verses 11 and 12. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terabith at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide from the Midianites. So here we see Gideon hiding in a wine press. By the way, just to put this into context, the worst place to, to thresh wheat would be a wine press. I don't have to get into all the details on that, but, but you need a lot of wind to, to thresh wheat, and a wine press does not give you that. Gideon is hiding from the Midianites. He's cowering in fear. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And that is our introduction to Gideon. If you continue reading chapters 6 and 7, you're going to find the story of a man who who doesn't seem like much of a mighty warrior, uh, of great valor. God calls Gideon to save Israel, but Gideon doubts his call. Gideon doubts his qualifications. He says, I don't know that you've got the right person from the right family, from the right social standing. I don't know that I'm the right one. So God provides a miraculous sign to to ensure to Gideon that he is calling him. And so Gideon then worships the Lord and God gives him his first calling. His first calling is to go and destroy the false idol set up at his dad's house. This is a double whammy for Gideon. It's not only go and knock down this popular altar, but it's sitting at your dad's house, and you've got to do it to your dad. <laughs> so Gideon fearfully but obediently goes and knocks down the false idol and erects a proper altar to worship God. Gideon is hiding. We don't hear anything from Gideon, but Gideon's dad stands up for him and, and basically talks his way out of the people killing Gideon. And after all of this, Gideon's still unsure, so he asks God for more tests. Right? He says, okay, God, even though you've given me a miraculous sign, even though you've spared me from the people after I've knocked down their altar, why don't we do this test? And he gives them this weird, like, let's see if you can do it, God-type test. And Gideon takes a piece of fleece, and he says, okay, I'm going to set this outside overnight. And what I want is for all of the ground to be wet with dew, but I want the fleece to be uh, opposite, I'm sorry, I want the, the ground to be dry, but I want the fleece to be wet. I want all the moisture to be absorbed in this fleece, but not a drop of dew on the ground. God kind of rolls his eyes. That's not in the Bible, but that's the Trey Reed version of what happened. And says, okay, fine. Gideon gets up the next morning, and he grabs the fleece, and he wrings bowls of water out of the fleece. Yet there's not a drop of water on the ground. Miraculous sign. Gideon should be ready to conquer anything now. And he goes, oh, God, I've got one more question for you. You know, maybe it was a fluke. Weather's weird here in the Middle East right now. Maybe it absorbed all the moisture. Why don't we flip-flop it? If it's really you, God, why don't we put the water all over the ground and make the fleece dry? Then we would know, right? At this time, I don't think God's rolling his eyes anymore. I think he's clenching his fist and he's ready to send Gideon flying, but he doesn't. Instead, Gideon goes to bed. He wakes up the next morning, and what do you know? The fleece is bone dry, and the ground is covered with dew. 
God is answering Gideon's doubts. So Gideon goes in chapter 7 and gathers an army of what we find out to be 32,000 men. Now this is not enough to conquer Midian. 32,000 sounds like a lot, but remember how the people of Midian are described. Their, their people and their locusts, uh, their people and their camels are like locusts. Uncountable. Swarms that come in. 32,000 is not going to, to put a dent in. 32,000 is a finite number. The people of Midian had too many to count. And so 32,000 men are ready to go and attack, and God says that's too many. Through a process of of elimination, God narrows it down to 10,000 men. And Gideon's going, okay, God, I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm trusting you until God says, nope, 10,000 is still too many. And then he gives them this weird test that we're going to look at here in a minute and says, I want you to narrow it down even further to where 9,700 of them fail the test and get left behind, and Gideon is left with 300 men to go and attack the people of Midian. And so Gideon surrounds the the camp with 300 men with nothing but jars, torches, and trumpets. (laughs) And so basically God says, I want you to blow the trumpets, break the jars, and shine your light. (laughs) So they drop the jars, they shatter everywhere, they blow the trumpets with one hand, they raise the torches with the other, they never charge the town, and God, being God, causes such fear in the camp of Midian that they wake up in the middle of the night, hear the trumpets, listen to the banging, see the lights, start drawing their swords, and they slay each other in the camp of Midian. Not a single sword from Israel was drawn, and yet the Midianites are defeated. If you continue to read chapter 7, Gideon then gathers the other 9,700 that he's kind of sent away, and they go off and they finish the conquest of the Midianites, and God rescues the people, and they have rest uh, for 40 years. This is the story of Gideon, and it's, it's, it's a great battle and a great movie and a great excitement, but but really, I want to look at Gideon and, and not the greatness of the story, instead the, the failures of the man. Because I, I want to be honest with you, I am Gideon. Every time God says go, I say, but God, have you considered? <laughs> Every time God says do, I go, but there might be someone else that's better suited. Every time God says, I want you to, I go, is it really you, God? Would you mind proving yourself to me? I'm someone who carries a fleece in my back pocket and I'm constantly saying, God, Can you make it wet or can you make it dry? I want to know all the answers. God, how's it going to pan out? I I want to know all the steps. Lord, can you show me the plan? I want to know the battle. I want to know how how you're going to work it out before I take that first step. And if we're honest with ourselves, we, like Gideon, want to be comforted. God did not ever send Gideon into a time of comfort. Instead, God continued to use him in spite of his fears and in spite of his failures. So let's look at the character of the man God decides to use in Gideon. If you have your bullets and you can follow along and take these notes, first of all, in Gideon, God used the doubting. God used the doubting. God used a man who had a lot of questions, who wasn't sure about the plan, even up until the very end. He's constantly saying, God, can you show me? Can you prove yourself? Are you sure about this? Do you think this is a better way? Don't you think that it should be this way? Don't you think you should use this person? Over and over again, Gideon is doubting God and his plan. And so what we find is is God not necessarily giving Gideon the whole plan, but using him in spite of his doubts. This gives us hope because I've got a lot of questions for God. 
I've got a list. I need to start writing them down because I forget them, but it's long enough that I don't think I could get them all on one piece of paper. I want to know a lot of things from God, and God, in spite of not giving me all the answers, continues to want to use me even in my doubts. We read about Gideon doubting in Judges 6, 13. Gideon says to the angel of the Lord, who calls him mighty warrior, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Notice all the questions from Gideon. If you call me a mighty warrior, why are we being oppressed by the Midianites? If you're really so strong, why haven't you done something? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying? And Paul's right there. Gideon heard the prophet. Do you catch this here? He's heard that, that God has saved the people of Israel from Egypt. Where are all these miracles that this prophet tells us about? Remember the prophet that came and said he saved us from Israel and he brought us out and he, he performed all these miraculous plagues through Moses? And Where's this God at? And so he asks the question, where's the God? Did the Lord not bring us from Egypt? I remember the prophet, but now the Lord's forsaken us and given us into the hands of the, Midian, the Midianites. Gideon has blamed God for all the problems that are going on. He has doubts about the power of who God is. God, the prophet said you could do these miraculous things. Where are you? Have you ever found yourself asking God, where are you? God, the struggles in my life right now, I I don't know where you're at, and you need to be here for me, and you're not. Have you found yourself going, God, I'm not so sure you can do the things that the prophet or the word of God says you can do. Gideon's pointing fingers here, and none of them are pointed at himself. Do you remember, though, that God did tell them why they're in this predicament? Let's not forget what the prophet also said. See, Gideon listened to what he wanted to listen to. God can do all these miraculous signs, but he forgot what the prophet said in verse 10. The prophet said, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but (laughs) Gideon, you have not obeyed my voice. You've not done what I've called you to do. You know what I found myself doing in my doubts? What I found myself is is I doubt the character of God because I want to embrace all that God can do, but in my own disobedience, God is holding that back. He's not doing the things in my life I think he should be doing, and I blame God for that instead of going, I've not obeyed his voice. (laughs) I'm not doing God's will. See, Gideon listened to what he wanted to listen to, but he ignored the point-blank prophet's word of, you need to be obedient. Gideon's got some doubt issues now with God because he's not willing to embrace his own sinfulness, his own failures. Notice, though, that God doesn't answer his question. Let's look at verse 14. When Gideon says, where have you been? What have you done? God doesn't answer his question. Instead, he just reaffirms the call. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did not I send you? Have you ever been asked a stupid question before? I get this a lot from uh, teachers who tell me there are no dumb questions, but man, there's some that are really close, right? Um, there, there's no dumb questions. Ask whatever you want, but, but there are questions that have stupid answers. Let's just admit that. And here I think God is getting a question that's just a really stupid question. The prophet just said that, that you need to be obedient. You're in this mess because you are unfaithful. And now Gideon goes, where have you been, God? And I feel like God looked at him and said, that's not a proper question, and I refuse to answer it. That's not an acceptable question, and I'm not entertaining that thought. God says, forget about what your doubts are, just go. Am I not sending you? 
You've asked me who's come to fix the problem. Did I not just say, it's you? (laughs) I kind of thought maybe you'd be the one, Gideon. Oh, mighty man of valor. But Gideon still doubts. In verses 15, he he basically says, I'm too weak. I'm not good enough or strong enough or powerful enough. And so in verse 17, in his doubt, he looks at God and says, If I've found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. This is Gideon bargaining with God. God, if you're really who you say you are, show me. Do this for me. Have you ever bargained with God before? God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. If you would just answer this prayer request, then I will follow through with this in my life. You know, more often than not, God doesn't answer our bargaining. He he doesn't negotiate with us. He's God. But in this instant, miraculously, God provides a sign. And you can read down where where Gideon goes and gathers two uh, uh, sacrifices, and he brings them and prepares them. And as he offers them, he lays them out on the altar and miraculously fire comes out of a rock and consumes them. And the the angel of the Lord just vanishes and disappears. And Gideon just sees this miraculous sign that God answers to him. I wish God would answer my doubts that way. And if I think you're honest, you do too. But if you could just show me that you're in this, if you could just consume something from a rock, that'd be great, you know. If you just show your might and your strength, but... But God doesn't always give us the miraculous sign. You know why God doesn't give us the miraculous sign? (laughs) Because we're like Gideon. And even though Gideon got the miraculous sign, look at his words in verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, if you'll save Israel by my hand, as you've said, it didn't fix Gideon's doubts. Gideon still asked for, for two more signs. I wonder if if we can relate to Gideon in our doubts, that we're always wanting something from God. Show me something. Prove yourself to me. And God is going, I already did. Didn't I save you? Time and time again, didn't I call you out of your sin? Didn't I bring you to the place that you're at? Then if I showed you something miraculous, wouldn't you just turn around and ignore it and ask for more? See, God doesn't want to use us to answer all of our doubts. God wants to use us in spite of the fact that we do doubt. God wants to use us through the doubts. By the way, that's what faith is. God, I don't know how this is going to work out. But I trust that you'll figure it out, that you know what's best. I have questions, I have fears, I have doubts, but you, God, you know what's best. In Gideon, God uses the doubting, and boy, I'm so thankful he does because I've got a lot of questions and a lot of doubts. Also, Gideon, God uses the fearful Really, you can write the word fear for, you can write the word coward in there if you want, because that's probably more accurate. God uses those who, who have a lot of fears and anxieties. When God calls Gideon, Gideon's response is not, okay, if you say I'm a mighty warrior, I am. Instead, in verse 15, Gideon says to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. God, I'm a nobody, and I'll get crushed. I can't do it. My inadequacies, Gideon says, keep me from being the right person. God, you, you messed up. I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not worthy and I'm not able. See, Gideon not only has doubts, but he's got flat-out fears. He doesn't think that he's going to be saved. Down in verse 27, we see even in his obedience, he has fear. 
God says, go break down the altars. And in verse 27, Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. There's obedience, great. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. It's obedience in verse 27, but it's fearful obedience. God, I'll do what you want me to do, but, but I'm scared to death. It's something I want you to take comfort in when, when we look at this idea of fearful obedience is, is first, nowhere in Judges chapter 6 is Gideon reprimanded. God doesn't look at Gideon and go, you did it, but you chicken, <laughs> you did it at night. No. Instead, all we see is, is God rewarding Gideon for being obedient in spite of his fearfulness. See, God doesn't want us to be obedient only with our strength and with our, our pride and with our, our answers. Instead, I think sometimes God wants us to be scared. I think sometimes God looks at us and says, in spite of your fears, go and be obedient. Gideon goes at night, but guess what? Gideon went. Gideon's hiding, but guess what? He's doing exactly what God told him to do. Gideon doesn't have his answers, but God is using him in spite of his fears. I love this about Gideon. God does not say, go and be courageous to Gideon. He just says, go. You know what stops us from being faithful to God? Often is our own fear of inadequacy or inability. And God says, I don't care that you're afraid. I just want you to go. I don't care that you don't have your answers. I just want you to go. I don't care that you don't know how to do it, that you're scared, that you're hiding. I just want you to go. God uses the doubting. God uses the fearful. And, and in the army that he assembles, God uses the underpowered. God, God uses those that can't do it on their own. I love in the New Testament, there's a verse that says, God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The reason why I love this verse is, is because basically it's saying God uses the stupidest people he could find to do his ministry. And I'm going, God, you called me to ministry. <laughs> What's that say about me, you know? No. But, but that's exactly what I love about it. God, God, you use those who aren't able to do things, and you do miraculous things. In chapter 7, uh, we see God putting this army together, and in verses 2 and 3, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many uh, for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying he, his own hand has saved me. Therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So Gideon stands up for 32,000 people. And I, just, I try to picture this in my mind, how, how this might look. Gideon standing before 32,000 people and going, Guys, We've got a pretty good army, but the Midianites are countless. So if any of you are too afraid to go into battle against them, you can go home. And as 22,000 people go away, I imagine Gideon start to slink away and go, yeah, me too. And, he's, and God drags him back in with a shepherd's hook, you know. No, not you. You stay. 22,000 people who admitted we're cowards, we're fearful, and we just don't want to do it. And they're down to 10,000. Then in verse 4, we see God look at Gideon, and he says, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I'll, I'll test them for you there. And any one of you to who I say, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So God says, I've got a test for you. Then I want you to take them down to the water, and we're going to shrink your army even more. 
Now, I, I want you to, to focus not necessarily on the next verse, verse 5, but on verse 4. Who is it that does the calling here? Who does the choosing of the men? See, we get so focused on how they're chosen in verse 5, and I want to look at that, but, but notice here it's God who says, I'm going to choose the men. I've got a test, and I already know. I'm the one doing this. It's important for us to realize it's, it's God who does the calling because it's God who does the empowering. Now, what is the test that he uses? How are they, how are they chosen? Well, we look in verse 5. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, you set them by themselves. So, so in the test, everyone who goes down to the water and uses his tongue and starts licking the water up like this, um, like a dog, okay? Everyone who looks like a dog, you go put in a corner. And everyone who kneels down and doesn't look like a dog, okay, you put them in another side. Now, if you're just playing the role of God right now, do you want the people who look like a dog or the people who don't look like a dog? Who do you want? The dogs or the people? Yeah, I want the people, right? God says, no, I want you to take all the people who lapped it up with their tongues. <laughs> All those dog lappers, I want you to use them. There's only 300 of them, by the way. Now, we can break this down, and there are sermons, and I've heard sermons on why did God use the people who knelt down, and some people say, well, it's, it's because those who knelt down put their face in the water, and they weren't prepared and looking around. And, okay, and, and others say, those who dipped the water up, they, they had their head on a swivel, and they were lapping it so they could see what was going on, and, and we start to try to figure out why God would use this test, and can I tell you, if that's where you're at this morning, or you've heard a sermon like that, you've got the wrong idea, Okay. It's important that God calls them dogs. Nowhere else in Scripture are people called dogs, and it's a good thing. It's always a bad thing. The point is not that God called certain qualified people. The point is that God called those who were not qualified. God was not looking for a certain characteristic trait in these people. He wasn't looking for Marines. They didn't need to know how to use a sword. Can you hold a jar? Yeah. Can you hold a torch? Yeah. Can you blow into a trumpet? I can try. You're hired, right? It's not like God said, give me the most aware. He didn't need the most aware. Oh, if we focus on, on the procedure that God called these 300 men, we miss the point. The point is this. When God calls you, be ready. It doesn't matter whether you're qualified or not. And these 300 were not qualified. They were the dogs. So we see God calling together an army that is underpowered, not just in number, but let's be honest, they're underpowered in ability as well. These are not military men. Can you imagine being one of the 9,700 that, that leave there? Right? Oh, surely we're the bigger group. They're going to keep us. And they go home. He opens the door and his wife's standing there. And what are you doing home? I don't know. Gideon said, if anybody's afraid to come home. And he said, you were too afraid? No, I stayed. What, then what are you doing home? Well, then I took me down to some water and he asked me to get a drink. And then tapped me on the shoulder and he said, go home. And here I am, I'm home, and I'm sure his wife said, oh, you must have done something wrong, you know. And, no, I promise you, I don't know what I did. It just, because there was nothing. God just said, I want these men, and that's it. God calls us not because we have gifts and abilities, but because he wants to use us. We're underpowered, we're fearful, we're doubtful, and yet God says, I want to use you. And finally, and, and maybe most importantly, in Gideon, God used the faithful. Notice that, that three times as you read Judges 6 and 7, we find Gideon worshiping. 
in spite of his fears and his doubts, the fact that he was unqualified and underpowered, three times Gideon worships. The first time is after the miraculous sign. It says in verse 24 of chapter 6, Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. A few chapters later, or a few verses later, when God says, Knock down the false idols, he, he commands Gideon to erect a, a proper altar. It says, Build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there with, storm, with stones laid in due order. And take a second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the asher that you shall cut down. A few verses later, it says, Gideon did everything that God called him to do. He worships. Chapter 7, we we find an interesting story. After God has brought the 300 people, if you read chapter 7, God looks at Gideon and says, with these 300 people, I will go and take you to defeat the Midianites. I've already showed you this great miracle of of consuming the offering. I've showed you the fleece thing twice, right? I've narrowed down your army through these uh, supernatural uh, workings. And so I want you to go, but in in verse, I think it's verse 2, or or, or, uh, maybe it's verse 12, God looks at Gideon and he says, but if you're still afraid, and Gideon, I'm still afraid, then just, just go down to the camp. And while Gideon's down at the camp, he overhears two of the Midianite soldiers talking. God's about to perform another miraculous sign. One of them says, I had a dream, and in this dream, this barley loaf came and rolled through our camp and, and just crushed everything. And Gideon's eavesdropping. He's going, okay, that sounds pretty neat. And the other one goes, oh, it, it must be Gideon, who's God's called to, to kill us all. There's a prophecy. He's coming and he's going to wipe us out clean. And Gideon's eavesdropping on this. Okay, God, maybe I know that this is true then. You've given the enemy a dream. You've revealed my name. And what we find is in verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. God used Gideon mightily. And what was his response? Faithfulness and worship. Now, did God choose Gideon because he was faithful? No. Let's be very clear about that. God didn't look at Gideon and say, because you did this great work, I want to use you. He looked at Gideon and said, you're hiding, you're scared, you're not the right stature, I want to use you anyways. Instead, Gideon was faithful because he was with God. God's the one who gave him the strength to be faithful. It was after God worked miraculously that he worships. That Gideon, his faith is bolstered. So what do we learn? When God calls you, act. Be obedient. And then, in that action, you will worship. God wants to use you not because you are faithful. God wants to use you to make you faithful. If you doubt and question, Lord, what are you doing in my life? You should be doing something miraculous and powerful. Where's the the promises that you've given me? Where's all the, the workings that you've said you'd be in my life? God says, why don't you just go? And every time Gideon goes, God shows up and his faith is bolstered and he worships. I wonder this morning if we can, like Gideon, bring our fears and our doubts to God, acknowledge that we don't have the strength and we're underpowered, acknowledge the fact that we're not always faithful, and just say, Lord, where you send me, I'll go. I'll do it. In the process, let God grow us in our faith and make us mighty men of valor. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing story in Gideon that, well, quite honestly, it doesn't seem like he did anything right from our perspective. You said go, he said why. 
You said, I'll empower you, and you, he said, I'm not strong enough. Lord, you, you gave him miracle after miracle after miracle, and yet he continued to ask you to show yourself to him. Lord, Lord, I'll confess to you that I have doubts and questions that you've not answered, and I'm frustrated. Lord, I have fears and anxieties and worries. Lord, I just don't think that I'm up for the task. Lord, I pray that you would, you would make me like Gideon. Not someone who had all of his questions answered, but someone who was obedient in spite of his fears. Lord, I know you've called me. I know you want to use me. And so, Lord, in spite of the fact that I'm underpowered and I'm, I'm a chicken, Lord, I pray that you would make me faithful through my actions. Lord, let me be obedient. And in doing so, Lord, show yourself to me so I will have no other option but to, to fall down and worship. Lord, I pray that you would give me strength in my weakness, that you give me confidence in my fears, that you would make me faithful through my obedience. It's in your name we pray. Amen.